morning. Great to see you on this um, absolutely spectacular weekend that we have been given. Um, I've been out for a few weeks, and, and one of the things that, that I did while I was um, away was to attend two reunions. One, uh, a fraternity reunion where I saw guys I had not seen in, um, in over 30 years, and then the second was my 35th high school reunion. They were uh, a week apart, and, and the effect of those two reunions caused me to be a little bit more reflective than I might normally be. Uh, the fraternity reunion came first. There were about 30 guys that got together. It turns out two of uh, the guys in our fraternity now have second lake homes on the same lake outside of Indianapolis, and so we crashed there. Lots of food, lots of laughter, lots of fun, lots of stories reliving the events of 30 years ago. And it was a a wonderful time, and it led to one uh, profound insight. Everybody was basically doing what we might have been able to predict they would be doing if we had been just a little bit brighter 30 years ago. Jim, Mark, and Mike are all medical doctors. Phil's a dentist. Dave, Dick, Bob, and Pat own or run small businesses. Mike's an investment banker. Tim, Tom, Paul, Brad, Mark, and Mark are all attorneys. I'm a pastor. John's an executive. A different John is living uh, in a homeless shelter in Florida. He has struggled with alcoholism uh, the entire 30 years and basically um, has nothing. Uh, Mark, one, uh, was arrested about 10 years ago for embezzlement and disbarred and is struggling. Mark, two, has been in and out of uh, numerous rehab clinics, also lost his law license, uh, and is living with his parents. And Tim was recently sentenced to 50 years in the federal penitentiary for a $250 million Ponzi scheme. On the one hand, some of these things are surprising. On the other hand, not so much. The trajectory was there 35 years ago. We all sort of said, yeah, it makes sense. I I saw that. I get that. There were no big surprises except for Wade and Matt and Tom and Morgan and Mark who were all doing surprising things after they placed their faith in Christ and were changed. Wade uh, left a job with one of the big three in Detroit to plant a church in Salt Lake City. Matt sold a successful business in order to live simply and volunteer uh, all of his time doing campus ministry among international students at Purdue. Tom left a job as an executive with State Farm in order to do um, community ministry um, in Orlando. Uh, Jeff not only came to faith in Christ, but he became a a professor at a Christian college. 
No one saw any of these things coming. And in some cases, they are mind-numbingly shocking. My high school reunion a week later was um, more of the same. I've only been back to one sort of gathering of high school classmates since I graduated 35 years ago. It was a 20th reunion, and it didn't go particularly well. Um, It was a 7 o'clock. We were meeting at a bar. There were 800 people in my freshman class. We graduated 525. Um, So I don't know how many have been invited, but it's a small bar in downtown East Moline, and it's the party is to start at 7 o'clock. I showed up at 7.30, and there's a a fight going on in the parking lot. And um, some of the guys who, uh, the last time I saw them, they were drunk, um, were were drunk again, or it occurred to me perhaps still drunk uh, 20 years later. And it it wasn't a very fun night. Um, This year's invitation was for a dinner uh, that started at 4 (laughs) o'clock. And I thought, (laughs) is this my 35th high school reunion or my 75th high school reunion? Dinner at 4. Okay. So I showed up at 4 because I wanted to get there before the fights broke out. (laughs) And it was uh, a remarkably enjoyable time. I stayed for five hours catching up with friends. And it was uh, very interesting. Jeff just uh, finished a career in military intelligence. Leo's a tax attorney in Austin. Mike works in HR. Dan's a chiropractor. Steve flew uh, F-15s a couple terms and is now a pilot with American Airlines. Uh, one Mark is a doctor. Another Mark uh, works at a loading dock for deer. Scott C. is a pastor. Scott R. is selling cars. Pat is living off the grid somewhere in northern Canada. Mary's teaching third graders. Julie lives with a bunch of cats in Phoenix. Mike is a state senator, and Jude married Michelle Pfeiffer's sister and plays in a rock band with Kiefer Sutherland. None of that is all that surprising. Pretty much you could say, well, I, I, I couldn't have predicted it, but I saw the trajectory 35 years ago. But once again, the exceptions. Bob, Craig... Greg, Doug, Scott, Randy, the exceptions are those people whose lives have taken a very different turn after they have come to faith in Christ and Christ has changed them. Sometimes, again, in remarkably shocking ways. Today, we begin a brief series on change. It is, um, it is undergirding and sort of preparing us for the big series that will start in a month, Seven Life Lessons from the Seven Deadly Sins. Uh, that's the big series. That's the one lots of us have been working on for the last six months. That's the one with all the moving pieces, the book, the video, the small group stuff, the daily devotions. All of that is going to start in uh, about a month. And Seven will be looking at the ways we are held back. The, the common roadblocks that people face. This series, this brief series, I, I want us to look at the kinds of things that we need to do in order to move forward. 
As opposed to looking at what holds us back, I want to look at some of the things that push us uh, ahead. And today, what I want to do is is read a, a long passage of Scripture and then make a handful of observations about it. Some of this may strike you as being a little bit out of order. It is, but I'll explain why I'm doing what I'm doing when I'm doing it uh, as we get to the end. So uh, if you want to follow along, the passage is found in the book of Daniel, which is an Old Testament book. Uh, Daniel uh, is a prophetic book. It, um, it follows Ezekiel, if that helps in any way. Uh, page 874 in my Bible, or about three-fourths of the way through the Old Testament. Daniel describes events that are taking place in 600 B.C., which is towards the end of the Old Testament era. Remember, uh, after the first chapters in Genesis, the Bible essentially is a story reporting Uh, Abraham's descendants and the things that unfold in their lives. So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, says, I want to bless the whole world through you. If you follow me, if you obey, then I am going to give you land and descendants. And if we can put that chart up, um, what, what then follows is we watch as Abraham moves from a a family to his descendants becoming a a tribe and then a small nation. And then under David and Solomon, they become a superpower. Um, At some point after Solomon's death, the nation of Israel splits into two and the northern ten tribes called Israel have a short run before they're wiped out. The southern two tribes called Judah last a little bit longer, but they are then going to be overrun by the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, They are marched into captivity called exile where they live for 70 years. At the end of those 70 years, they return to Jerusalem. God delivers them uh, and they begin, but they're just a shadow of who they had been. The passage that we're going to look at, the book of Daniel, comes towards the very end, where that star is, towards the end of the Old Testament. This is is events, these are events that took place during the 70 years in captivity in Babylon. So, by way of just a little bit further background in the book of Daniel, because we're going to focus in Daniel chapter 3, in in Daniel 1... We, uh, we read about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians overrunning, capturing the Jews and marching them to Babylon. And in classic conquest behavior, they identify the best and brightest young men out of that country and they pull them out in order to, to uh, cultivate them. The, the end plan is that they want to they elevate them, they want to assimilate them, and then they want those men who are the natural leaders to go back and win over everybody else. So Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, that, that's their, that's their uh, Babylonian names, that's the names we know. Daniel's Babylonian name is Belshazzar, but he goes by Daniel. But Daniel and his three friends are among those who are picked. We read in verse 4 of chapter 1, they were young men 
uh, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now, we also learn, as we read on in in chapter 1, that uh, Daniel and his friends make a decision to not eat the king's food. Um, They're they're not ugly about this. Uh, Interestingly, they adapt to Babylonian culture in other ways, but they, they take a principled stand to say, we want to, we want to make a statement that even in Babylon we belong to Israel, that even in Nebuchadnezzar's palace we are Yahweh's. And so they, they are three times a day, they're going to step aside, not eat the food, the good food, the king's food that is provided for them in order to make a statement principally to themselves, right, that I'm going to keep my identity. I'm going to remind myself in a a systematic way whose I am. And this works, and and they thrive, and they begin to rise up through Nebuchadnezzar's administration. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a, a sort of a spiritual crisis. He has a bad dream, and he goes to his advisors asking that they would interpret it. The advisors, um, chiefly astrologers, say to him, fine, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar says, "Uh, no, I'm actually not going to tell you the dream. You need to tell me the dream and you need to tell me what it means. They say, uh, that's not the way it works. And he says, that's the way it works now. And they say, it can't happen. And the king says, chapter 2, verse 5, this is what I have firmly decided if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Okay, well, so um, a little stress there. Uh, the, the advisors push back for a while. Eventually the king orders them all killed. Daniel intercedes on their behalf and he asks for some time. He prays God not only reveals the dream, he reveals the interpretation of the dream. Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, explains everything. Nebuchadnezzar is, is um, thrilled to have this insight. He promotes uh, Daniel further. Daniel is able, consequently, to, to bring with him Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, Abednego, and it, they're moving forward. And by the way, the dream was not a happy dream. It was about a statue with a head of gold that, uh, that sort of became of lesser quality as you got down until finally there were feet of clay. Um, if you're ever curious as to where the expression feet of clay came from, it comes from Daniel chapter 2. So we're now going to begin reading in Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to read uh, an extended passage here beginning with verse 1. Daniel chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so just, I'm not going to offer much commentary, but I do want to note, 
given his dream of a big statue that crumbles, uh, the message being your empire is going to crumble, this seems to be a particularly bad move by Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, well, he does it anyway. He then, verse 2, he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers, these would be the advisors that David had spared, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your God nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, and by the way, Nebuchadnezzar would be a great case study for most of the seven deadly sins, certainly pride and anger. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I'm going to stop reading there because I believe this is the high watermark of the chapter. If you're familiar with it, you might think otherwise. If you're not familiar with it, you need to know what happens next. Um, Nebuchadnezzar orders Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound. He then orders the furnace to be stoked to seven times uh, its normal heat and he has them thrown into it. And the the fire is so hot that the soldiers who are throwing them in all perish. 
But remarkably, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not perish. And Nebuchadnezzar famously looks into the furnace and sees four people not three people standing there. And we uh, believe, or at least speculate, that the fourth person would actually be Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Jesus has existed from eternity past as God. Before his incarnation, he is in heaven. He he manifests himself here with these three in some way. Um, Nebuchadnezzar runs down there. He talks to them. He invites them to come out of the furnace. They do. They're fine. They don't even smell like smoke. And he then um, uh, acquiesces to them. He actually promotes them. It's, it's all quite remarkable. Um, I, I want to argue that the high watermark of the chapter is not God sparing them. It's actually the, the stand that they take. And I want to say that they are able to do this when no one else did, for some very specific reasons. They, unique in the land, have not been sort of lulled to sleep, not been mesmerized by the whole affairs of that culture. Right? I, I, I deliberately read this chapter because I think in a unique way, the chapter is designed to give us a little feel for this sort of mind-numbing ethos that they were living in. This, these long lists that just keep getting repeated, right? It sort of has a little bit of a hypnotic, lulling effect. And everybody is sort of says, okay, when the music plays, we fall down to worship the statue, okay. And, and these three guys go, not a chance, we're not doing it. Right? We, we, we're not going to follow everyone else. Now, there's, this, is, this is a very powerful passage, and there's a number of things to see. I have been, uh, recently I have been impressed by, um, by some of the thinking that's been done by um, a scholar, Mark Laberton, who has made the observation that in the Old Testament you have two paradigms that carry forward into the New Testament. And he describes one as Exodus thinking and one as exile thinking. And Exodus thinking, uh, you have a bad guy, Egypt, and uh, the people of God are suffering unjustly, and God promises to deliver them from their unjust suffering. And he does. And the motif is moving from slavery to freedom. It's it's an Old Testament model that we see repeated in the New Testament. Well, exile thinking is more complicated than Exodus thinking. Again, you have a bad guy, Babylon, uh, and, and you have the people of God suffering, but they're not suffering unjustly. They're actually suffering for their sin and rebellion. And God is is causing them, allowing them something to suffer in order to try and turn them back to him. And there's no promise that he's going to make everything right. You have both 
exodus and exile thinking in the Old Testament, and you have these paradigms carrying forward in the New Testament as well. And Mark has noted that the church around the world generally understands itself to be living in exile. The church in the United States generally understands itself to be living in exodus. Right? That we think that we are suffering unjustly and that there is a promise that all our dreams and hopes are going to be uh, delivered. There's a lot in this chapter that is, that is rich and worthy of reflecting on. I want to make two big observations here. I believe that the reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are able to to remain true to God, to to go left when everybody else goes right, is, first of all, because they had cultivated their identity in God in an ongoing, systematic, daily way. Three times a day, they would be reminding themselves, I don't belong to Nebuchadnezzar, I belong to Yahweh. Three times a day. There's nothing wrong with the king's food. Right? It's, been, it's been offered to idols, but we know from Paul in the New Testament that that really doesn't mean anything. They could eat the food. There's nothing wrong with the food. They just, they just decide we've got to do something to make it very clear to others, but especially to ourselves, who we belong to. And they, they practice their identity in God on an ongoing basis. And they did it together. Right? They didn't ever stand isolated. They were in a group. Everything about this was, uh, there, was a, there was a, dare I say it, a small group component that, that allowed them to move forward. When I, um, when I walked into the, the room for my 35th high school reunion, it was a big, big outdoor uh, sort of uh, courtyard. When I walked out into that courtyard at 4 o'clock to avoid the fights, um, I looked and there were 40, 50 people there. And I sort of scanned the, the crowd and had this horrific sinking feeling of I don't know any of these people I'm I'm alone here right it's almost like I'm a 13 year old freshman going back to into my first class and it's just horrific right there's just moments of of I don't I I'm gonna leave I'm just gonna keep walking and I'm going to leave because I don't know anybody here when I finally found one person I knew, everything was better. Right? One plus one sometimes equals a lot more than two. And one plus one plus one equals a lot more than three. What's, what's one of the first things that, that, a, that a, an enemy will do if they capture somebody and they want to turn them? They want to turn them against their family or against their faith or against their country. They isolate them. Right? They isolate them because it's so hard to go it alone. We were not made to go it alone. 
We are wired for community. Life works best in the company of friends. You need people who love God and love you and are going to walk alongside you. We all desperately need that. The good news is change is possible. We can get better. Not perfect, but we can get better. We can grow. We can become more who God wants us to be, more who we want to be, more who our family and friends want us to be. Change is possible, but not alone. It just doesn't happen that way. That's not the plan. And, and we see this throughout the Bible, that, that we need each other. And so one of the reasons that, um, that Daniel and his friends, or that his friends in this, in this particular incident, one of the reasons that Daniel's friends are successful, I believe, is because they have each other. We are um, about to launch a month from now. We're going we're gonna to launch this new series. And I want to take advantage right now to say um, you need to step into a small group. You need to be uh, among some others as you move through this if, if it's going to work to the extent that we want it to work. And some of you are in small groups, great. Um, it may be that your small groups need to open up and allow other people to come in. Some of you are in small group, groups, and it's time for you to step out and to host your own group. Again, we do this every fall. We make it as easy as possible for you to host a group, right? And hosts, they, they need to be hospitable. That's the H. O, they need to open their home or their office. S, they need to be able to serve something to eat and drink. And T, they need to be able to turn on the DVD. We have made this very easy. Just add people. And and. Part of the reason that this message is happening now as opposed to later on, if I just as I mapped out this series on change, this is not where I would start. Right? But I wanted to start here to say I want you to be praying about, thinking about family, friends, people you see here, neighbors, colleagues, others that you are going to extend an invitation to, to invite uh, to move forward. And this fall, we have set it up to do that. I, I want, I want to change. I don't want to stay who I am. I want to get better. And I believe that we can. Uh, and we're, we're working to that end. And we see some of the things that are, res- that are necessary for that. Practicing our identity in God in various ways. Going through life with a company of friends Uh, We see some of the pieces of what's required for that change to happen in this this passage. So let's pray for a fall that is catalytic. And uh, let me pray for you for next steps um, that God may have for you to take. Father, we thank you for uh, the great stories that we find in the Old Testament in Daniel 1, 2, and 3 and beyond, we thank you for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the example that they, uh, that they set for us and some of the 
the, the, the truths that they embody that we can see. Um, I pray for myself and pray for others. Lord God, um, want to keep changing, want to keep growing. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that your love for me is not contingent upon my being perfect. Um, But I also thank you that um, in addition to meeting me where I'm at and graciously loving me in spite of who I am, I thank you that you don't want to leave me where I am and that you will move me forward. So to that end, Father, um, help us Help us have hope in that direction. Help us to take steps in that direction. Uh, Bring to mind, uh, challenge people to step forward, to to take a next step. You get into a group, to to host a group, uh, bring to mind others that they can invite. Move us forward to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.